the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. My country cheers with me. Sweet land of liberty of Beyonce. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. For the last 22 years, I have um, departed from my typical radio format on the anniversary of 9-11. 
um, no matter where I've been. And that's going to continue today. So if you're tuning in for all of the latest news of the day, uh, we're going to be we're going to be doing something a little bit different, with the exception of a conversation that I will have in uh, about 25 minutes <clears throat> with Congressman Jim Jordan. Um, and as a matter of fact, that conversation will also start with 9/11 commemoration and uh, uh, expressions of remembrance. I'm going to ask Jim Jordan the same thing I'm going to ask you all day long. And that is, how did the events of September 11, 2001 change your life? If, indeed, it did change your life. For some people, it didn't. For some people, it did for a little while. And for some people, it did for quite some time, but it's starting to fade, and their life isn't very much different now. Um, I bring this up for the most obvious of reasons. Um, we made a pledge. We made a pact. It didn't. It isn't something we had to put our hand on a Bible to do. We just all said it and felt it. Even if we didn't let it cross our lips, we felt it that we would never forget. The moments... The pain, the suffering, the struggling, the tragedy of all of those who were involved on that day. We would never forget what it did to them. We would never forget what it did to us collectively as a nation, what it did to families. We would never forget. And 22 years on now, it begs the question, are we... Are we uh, breaking our pact, our contract with ourselves. Because the sad reality is the cancellation of 9-11, to use 2023 vernacular, the cancellation of 9-11, I think, is underway. It's the first time since that day an American president will not be at New York City, Ground Zero, or in Washington, D.C., where the Pentagon was struck, or in Shanksville for services and ceremonies. The President of the United States is going to spend his day today in Alaska for reasons unknown. Why that would be timed up the way that it was is unknown, with the exception of what I just said, that I believe it's the attempt to move on from 9-11, to cancel it from a collective consciousness, and to focus on other things and initiatives that are much more divisive than something that was a great unifying moment in tragedy and sorrow and in death. And so I'm going to do my level best to make sure that, A, we never forget it. That's why I do this every single year. And also to explain to the younger generation, what we now call Generation Z, the kids who weren't born yet are the kids who had just been born and have no idea what it was all about that day. What exactly do we tell them to make sure that the memory never fades? That the graphic drama of the moment and of the day is understood? What do we do to make sure that those of us who were alive and fully conscious of everything that happened on 9-11 and in the aftermath, when we die off, uh, 
that the memory of 9-11 does not die with us. How do we do that? You know, I watch specials and documentaries on this every single year. And my wife sometimes gives me a hard time. She'll say to me, spoiler alert, the buildings came down. Turn it off. She's not doing it to be crass. She remembers it very well, as do I, and where we were. Um, She just doesn't like to, um, you know, relive and 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 wallow in the in the horror, which is probably pretty normal. I don't. I I'm not normal. I I watch as many of the documentaries, some that I've seen now, you know, ten, twelve times, fifteen times, depending on when they were produced. If they were produced in the immediate years following 2001 or if they were produced two years ago or or this year. And the one reason I do it, <clears throat> the one reason is because regardless <clears throat> of whether it's an old documentary or docudrama or series of videos or investigative reports, regardless of whether they're old or whether they're brand new, I learn something new every year. For example... I just opened up the show with that clip you just heard of a reporter down there at the scene standing, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred feet away, as as, as close as he was allowed to be as a reporter, and the camera panned directly up to the two burning towers at that moment. And as he was starting to do do his his live shot, or his recorded live shot, um, that's when the... Uh, South Tower began to collapse because, of course, that was the one that collapsed first. And it literally almost landed upon top of him and his cameraman, and you heard him scream, we have to get out of here. That was a dramatic moment, the collapse of both towers. We have all seen countless numbers of times. We have probably seen just as many times the South Tower being hit by um, United 175. And if you have seen the documentary of the uh, brothers who were filming it, ironically, a documentary about the FDNY, which is the only known footage of the North Tower being hit by American 11, um, those are like the four most impactful moments that we think of, along with those, of course, who suffered for as long as they could bear it up on the floors where the fires were raging and the ones who were forced to the windows to decide how they would die at that moment, whether they would die in flames or whether they would die falling. Um, those are the most dramatic moments, but here's one that I learned this this year. The first casualty of 9-11, and you probably understand this, the first casualty was aboard the planes. The first casualty is plural, We know that there were flight attendants that were attacked as the planes were hijacked. We know the captains were attacked as the hijackers took over the aircrafts. But 31-year-old American-Israeli Danny Lewin was the first victim of the September, September 11th attacks. Born in Colorado in 1970, his family moved to Israel when he was just a teenager. He soon began to serve as an officer in the IDF and later attended Technion's Technology Institute, received a scholarship at MIT, and came back to the U.S. to pursue his Ph.D. in 1998. He co-founded Akamai 
technologies, making him a millionaire before he turned 30. His decision to come back to the United States would be the fatal one, though, because on September 11, 2001, he was a passenger on American 11. He was headed to L.A. on business, and at some point he sensed that something was wrong, and according to an FBI report in an act of heroism, he left his seat to try to stop two of the terrorists when he saw what they were about to do, when a third terrorist came up from behind him and stabbed him. This has been recorded as as the first death from the 9-11 atrocities of that day. I never knew that until this year. The first death that is recorded according to the FBI. Now, how that squares with the flight attendants who were stabbed and so forth, I don't know, but this is what the FBI report says, and I think it's worth sharing. I have more stories that I want to share about um, that I've learned from my obsessive um, absorption of the of these documentaries and, and stories and, and videos and so forth, um, and I will, but I want to answer my own question before we do anything else. My question to you is, how did 9-11 change your life? And I want to share that, and I want to have discussion on that. By the way, before I tell you about that, and those who have been listening to me for a number of years probably already know what I'm going to say because I tell the same story uh, each year because we all have one. We all have one. We all have that story about the day, and then, like I said, by extension, how it changed your life. So... um, it's it's just important to note that when I say that the cancellation of 9-11, I think, is underway, the attempt to remove it and erase it from the notable moments that we spend time on every year, when I say that's happening, I told you one example of it is Biden for the first time. A U.S. president is not going to be in one of the three sites. Here's another one. I asked this on my social media yesterday, last night. And to this moment, I've gotten a scant number of responses. How did 9-11 change your life? Please discuss, is what I wrote on Twitter and on Facebook. And I've gotten a very, very, very small number of people willing to answer the question. Those who did answered the question in depth and wonderfully and and presumably emotionally as well. But I, And I appreciate them. But not too many people are, have, a, have an appetite for it anymore. It's 22 years, you know. Kids that were born right before 9-11 or right after 9-11 have no idea it even happened. To them, it's history. It's, it's, it's in the history books. It's not something you live through the way we did. So how did 9-11 change my life? Um, my little baby girl had been born just three weeks before that. She was born in the middle of August. And on September 11th, um, I was up early to feed her. And I went into the nursery. We were living in San Francisco. I was doing sports radio. Hadn't given much of a thought at all to things like terrorism. Hadn't given a ton of thought to a lot of political things. I was all about sports at that time in my life. But I went into the nursery, and I picked up that bottle, and I sat down in that glider, and I flipped on that TV that helps you stay awake when you're feeding your, your, your baby, um, now, it was roughly 6 a.m. California time, which was, you know, 9 a.m. 
um, Eastern time zone. And I flipped on the television, and I saw the burning North Tower. And I woke my wife, and I yelled for her. And she came in, and I pointed at the TV. And as we watched the TV, we saw the South Tower being hit by 175, United 175. And at that time, I said, well, I didn't say it, but I felt that the the world was changed forever. And I asked her a very strange, weird, and I still can't understand why I said it, but I said, what have we done? And she said, what? And I said, how could we bring this baby that I was holding at that time into this world? Um, I was numb. I was numb. And I stayed glued to it. And then I got a call from my boss. Remember, I'm doing sports radio. I'm the Oakland Raiders sideline reporter. We got a we got a f- bunch of football things to discuss. We got all of these things to do on the radio. And my boss called me and said, you know, you can't talk about the Raiders or the Niners or any of this stuff today, right? And I said, yeah. And it was the first time in my sports radio career, which began in 1997, it was the first time in 2001 that I ever did a show that wasn't sports-centric, wasn't related to something having to do with games. And I worked my way through four hours of afternoon drive, and I I gave what I had, which which was... Mostly a lot of silence and a lot of listening as people called with their angry reactions and their sadness and their trauma. And everybody set aside everything else but that that day. Well, that started something for me that literally did change my life. From that moment on, I began to study, I began to read, I began to learn, and I began to change almost everything about my perspective on this country, and on our lives. It's what inevitably launched me into giving up sports radio in 2003 to do news radio for the first time. And then, yes, for a number of years, I did a combination of news radio and sports radio, working back in Cleveland, working for the Browns, working for the Indians, working for the Cavaliers, doing pregame and postgame shows and television and all kinds of other things, but it was always tied in with my news and political opinion-based shows. And eventually, I got out of the sports radio game altogether for the last 10 years. It's been all this. It would not have happened. I can promise you I would have have been doing just sports radio for the last 25 years instead of being, well, what I am now. Politically, it changed my perspective on the country, changed my understanding of the world, and... I now feel like it's my mission to share everything that I have learned with younger generations, starting with my own kids, and again, trying to make the young, like I said, people like my daughter, who was three weeks old when this all happened, um, to help them understand what reality was and how reality is different than what history makes it out to be. So that's just my first little glimpse into it for me. I have a lot of things we're going to listen to today to commemorate the day. 
I have a lot of things that I want to share with you uh, from a from a documentarian standpoint. There was a wonderful presentation last night on 60 Minutes by Scott Pelley. This is not the time for complaining about legacy news media and left-wing news media on 60 Minutes. They did a phenomenal job last night reporting on the 343 firefighters who lost their lives that day and all of those that survived. It was phenomenal. I'm going to share some of that with you. We're going to do this all day. But mostly I want to listen to you. How did 9-11 change your life? I just explained how it changed mine. A lot of people don't want to answer this question. Maybe they don't have an answer because maybe it didn't change them very much. And that's okay. But I want to hear from you at 216-901-0945. Coming up after the bottom of the hour break, we're going to hear from Jim Jordan. I'm going to ask him the same question. We will depart from the 9-11 format for just his conversation. But the first question I will ask him is how 9-11 changed his life. Then we'll get into some of the important news that he is working on in Washington, D.C., and then we'll get back to it with you at 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Now, before we take this break, uh, let's go ahead and get our pledge. It would seem to be appropriate to have everyone join hands, and, or metaphorically anyway. Put your hand on your heart and join us for our pledge of allegiance to this country. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands one nation under god indivisible with liberty and justice for all it's 928 always right radio on am 1420 the answer will be back Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. It is 9.36 on our special 9-11 commemorative broadcast. Inside the collapsing North Tower, the men of Engine 39 were caught in a stairwell. And it started out slow. Boom, boom, boom. Then it got quicker. And where pretty soon it was just like, bam, 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 bam. Coming down, you Jeff do. Coniglio and Jamie Epthamiades were on the stairs near the ground floor with 110 floors above them. It took 10 seconds for it to come down, but it felt like 10 minutes. I saw I was in the background of a funeral. I saw my casket. I saw my parents, my wife sitting in the front. And as I'm watching this, I'm like, all right, it's going to be quick. I'm just waiting for something to tap my shoulder and figure I'll feel a tap and that'll be it. We'll be gone. You know, we're not going to suffer. That was part of a very, very uh, moving 60 Minutes presentation last night on the 343 FDNY members who lost their lives and all of those who survived miraculously and some of the extraordinary stories that they have to tell. Um, as I said, we kind of depart from our normal format on uh, 9-11 every single year, and I've been doing this literally for 22 years since that day. But we do want to keep our regularly scheduled uh, conversation with Jim Jordan. Uh, and I'm going to start by talking to Congressman Jordan uh, about 9-11. And, uh, Congressman, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. It's obviously a very, very somber yeah. day, and I'm sure you understand. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. We have a lot of news to talk about, but before we get to the news, Congressman, I'm going to ask you the same thing I'm asking everybody who's listening yeah. to me today to share, and that is, how did 
the events of September 11, 2001 changed your life. You were at the Ohio State Senate at that time, if I'm not mistaken, were you not? Yeah, I was actually driving into work, uh, driving to the State House, and Polly called me and and started talking about it. And then I got on the phone, and, and then I got to the State House, and you just realized how what a tragic day this was. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a day-to-day when I, I think you remember the people who sacrificed. You remember the the firefighters, the police officers, the first responders. You remember the, the families who lost loved ones in, in New York and the plane that went down in Pennsylvania and of course at the Pentagon and, and, and you just you just remember the people who, who were hurt so bad and, and frankly we should never forget uh, the men and women in our military who for uh, for a number of years afterwards were went and took the fight to the bad guys so uh, that's what this day is I think that we remember um, but yeah I was just traveling to the state house I just, just got elected to the state senate and was was heading to work and, and that's when, uh, when I heard the news you know congressman um we all kind of made a pact, spoken or unspoken, that we would never forget. It was on bumper stickers and mm-hmm. T-shirts and everywhere, never forget 9-11. And now, 22 years on, I wonder if that's still holding, given the fact that for the first time since that fateful day, the President of the United States, a President of the United States, will not be in New York commemorating this day and the the, the loss mm-hmm. of life and the heroism there, or in Washington, D.C., where the Pentagon was struck, or at a field in Shanksville. Um, he's going to spend this day in Alaska. How, how does that sit with you? Yeah, I leave that to the president. Um, what what I I want I think the country should focus on is is what I said before: the families who were impacted uh, and the people who sacrificed in in the ultimate way. Uh, those, I mean, just that that clip you played from sixty minutes that that officer who was in the tower and was talking about what was happening, and we all remember seeing that on, on on television that morning, and you're just like, oh my goodness, there's people there there are people in there, people in there trying to rescue other people, and he was telling that that story. So I think that's what we, we focus on on Todd Beamer and those guys. I mean, so I've heard people talk about the first pushback from Americans against the terrorists happened in on that flight when those guys decided we're not waiting we're going to take the fight to the enemy then and there and they and they you know the whole let's roll uh was just amazing and it shows I think that's the American spirit that has been in and I think it's some people argue that's in our DNA because the people who came to this country in Europe, they were telling them you had to practice your faith a certain way. And they said, no, we don't. We'll go to a place where freedom matters. And that, that, that toughness and that courageous attitude that, again, you saw on display that day 22 years ago. And it started the, at, on that day. The pushback started with Todd Beamer, and it's, that's an American attitude. And that's, what I, that's what I want to focus on today. Yeah, that, and that's a that's a very good thing to focus on. There was a lot of heroism that day. People on those flights and people uh, obviously on the ground trying to save lives. It was uh, yep. pretty remarkable thing. Last thing on this, uh, Congressman, do you uh, w- w- how would you evaluate or how would you gauge the threat of Islamic terrorism in the United States today? Now that we, of course, are commemorating the worst, most horrific terrorist attack mm-hmm. in our country's history. Well, I think we're in, in a much better position to to, to deal with these these evil people who want to do the, the kind of harm that was done on that tragic day. Um, I, I, it, one of the focuses we have, and we've talked about this a lot over the last couple of years, is uh, you, you do it in a way, though, that's, that's consistent with the First Amendment. Um, but but I, I think we're in a much better position. We, you know, we never thought this kind of thing was going to happen in the United States of America until that, until that 
9-11 20, 22 years ago. So uh, I do feel we're in a better better place. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And I think uh, a lot of the steps that were taken um, in the last four years as well, in the fire, excuse me, the previous four years prior to the, to the Biden administration, not to go overtly political here, but taking out some extraordinary extraordinarily dangerous ISIS leaders and those who would, of course, support the things that were done on 9-11, I think was very, very important to that. Okay, having said that, since we are talking about leadership, let me ask you, as this uh, presidential season uh, you know, gets into full swing with debates and, of course, uh, primaries coming up after the first of the year, some states, including Colorado, as I understand it, are attempting to use the 14th Amendment to keep the former president, Donald Trump, off the ballot. Um, I've read a lot of legal scholars' opinions on this. I want to know what is yours. I would challenge any one of your listeners, uh, Bob, to read Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And they list about every single office in there. They list Congress. They list the Senate. They list local office. The one office that they do not mention, the one that is not mentioned anywhere in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, is the office of the president. It, 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 if they wanted this, this somehow this to apply to the president, they, you just think they'd have put it in there in the 1868, whatever year they wrote this, uh, the, the amendment. But it's not mentioned. So there's a host of reasons why this is the, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And I said this over the weekend on, on, a, on an interview. Um, but this is just a, the further escalation of the left's attack on President Trump and, and an attack on, 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 on our Constitution. Because, remember, it started with them spying on his campaign. Then it was Bob Mueller doing the crazy investigation. Then it was impeachment one. Then it was impeachment two. Then it was raiding his home. Then it was one indictment, two indictment, three indictment, four indictment. Now it's like now it's that we're they're talking the Fourteenth Amendment. It never ends. But this is he hasn't been charged with insurrection. He hasn't been convicted of insurrection. It's like this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. But this is where the left will take. And you couple this with what we learned over the weekend that Fonnie Willis was contemplating charging, indicting the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee for simply calling and asking a question and two other United States senators? That's how frightening this whole, this whole thing is, and it's why we have to push back and why we have to win the presidency. Um, next year it is out of control you're exactly right especially Fonnie willis and that part of the story so is jack smith i'll get to him in a second but to the point that you just made uh all very accurate um how do we stop then colorado for example any in any other states that are that are trying to keep them off of the ballot is it just a matter of taking and, them to court would it be federal court both. how does that happen two, two, two things one you, you, you speak out against it. You do what you're doing right now, what we're doing right now. We, we have to push back and speak out and talk about how crazy this is and how wrong this is. Because if you just sort of, oh, this is so egregious, so ridiculous, it'll go away. No, the left has proven that one thing, they will not go away unless you push back. So we have to push back there. And then I think we are going to have to get a court. Uh, in federal court and, and get the court to say, you guys are crazy. This is, this is the most. Re- did, did you think the founders, excuse me, the folks in 1860s, uh, our, our government, when they put together the constitutional amendment and it was adopted, do you think they were really thinking some secretary of state in one of the states can just unilaterally decide who's going to be the president of the United States? There's no way. That's yeah. the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But that's in effect what this would be about and what this would, would entail if it was allowed to go forward. And uh, again, it's why we got to push back on it. 
Very well said. We're talking to Congressman Jim Jordan. He is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and, of course, uh, uh, the Weaponization Subcommittee. We'll get to that, too. But let's go to Jack Smith now. The Judiciary Committee is investigating Jack Smith, the special counsel, for abusive tactics in the documents case of the four different uh, you know, indictments and trials that he's facing. This is on the documents case in Mar-a-Lago. What does that mean? What are you looking for? What is the committee looking for? They, they call a lawyer to, to, to the Justice Department. They call a lawyer who was representing one of the defendants, Mr. Nauta, who, who worked for President Trump. They call his lawyer to DOJ, and in the course of that conversation, they say, hey, you know, we know you're interested in this judgeship. They bring up that as almost like, hey, you, you better play ball with us. This, this, uh, your client better start cooperating with us. Mr., uh, Mr. Woodward, the lawyer they say this to, he then, he then files a complaint, and then the Justice Department goes after him and says, oh, you can't be representing two other clients that you're representing. That all happened. Jay Brad, who worked for Jack Smith at the Justice Department and is part of the special counsel team. And we're saying that's not how it operates, guys. That is that is so wrong. Uh, so we want to know what what exactly was going on here. Not to mention Jay Brad's going to the to the White House to talk to people. Who's he talking to there? We 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 we, we want to know that answer the answer to that question too. Um, on and on it goes with these with, with whether it's Alvin Bragg, whether it's Jack uh, Smith, or whether it's Bonnie Willis. Uh, things that just make no sense. Congressman, um, since you're there, um, specifically, let's talk about uh, the, the other investigations that are going on with the special counsel. Not Jack Smith, but this, this time David Weiss, who's been given that uh, task to try to bring justice to the Biden situation. That's not happening. It looks like he's, uh, and we talked about this last week, they're going to try to charge him by the end of the month with some weak uh, charge on, on the gun crime. But is that going to close the book on the investigation into all of Hunter Biden's illegal overseas dealings and how they bring Joe Biden into that equation? Who knows, but the, the gun charges is, is specific to Delaware. That's the one thing that can happen in Delaware court. Remember, they tried to run it all through Delaware court and, and, and do this plea agreement and this diversion agreement and everything else. So that's the one thing that can happen there for sure. The tax charges are involved in Delaware, L.A., and D.C., depending on whether they've now let the statute of limitations run on some of them, which it looks like they have. So that's a different question. But I don't think anything's changed there because the same guy who was running the investigation – who tipped off defense counsel when they wanted to search a storage unit, who tipped off the, the transition team when they wanted to go interview people, uh, who put together this sweetheart deal that we learned from the press was supposed to be even sweeter, but it was, but the, the deal was declined by the judge. The guy who ran all that operation for four and a half years, mind you, that's the guy, when it all falls apart, that's the guy who gets named special counsel by Mayor Garland. Well, the, 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 it doesn't take a genius to figure out what, what the heck is going on here. And we know what's going on. This special counsel is designed to protect Joe Biden. The other special counsels are designed to go after President Trump, but this one is designed to protect President Biden, and that's, um, that's not how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be independent when you put together a special counsel. And I don't think David Weiss is independent. No, clearly not. He's obviously answering to Merrick Garland and to Joe Biden himself, or at least those who handle Joe Biden. I think that's very obvious. And then the last thing for you this morning, Congressman Jim Jordan, uh, obviously the Weaponization Subcommittee is uh, is doing great work in trying to expose a lot of the collusion between the government and some of these social media platforms censoring the views of Americans. Missouri versus Biden. The Fifth yeah. Circuit has apparently enjoined the White House, the Surgeon General, the CDC, and the FBI from either coercing or significantly encouraging a platform's content moderation decisions how big is that yeah no it's huge it's huge and this is a just a continuation of the good decision we got at the lower court from the uh there in the western district of louisiana and so the fifth circuit it, it great decision for the first amendment great decision for the constitution great decision for americans right 
So um, telling these telling these agencies, you can't go pressure and coerce and cajole the the big tech companies to censor speech that you don't like. Remember, the Biden administration on the third day of the administration tried to have a tweet taken down from their Democrat primary opponent, RFK. They tried to take down a tweet three day, 37 hours into the administration uh, that they tried to do that. And then on and on it went going after they had the disinformation dozen that they come up with from this, this organization that was given the White House I- information, and then they were using that to, to, to label these folks. So this is a huge win for, um, for the First Amendment. This is why we've been pushing for this. We've, God bless Missouri and the attorney generals in, in, in both those states uh, for, for bringing that case when they did, but it's, uh, it, it's a good win for us. No question about it. It's extremely important for the First Amendment, and that means for all of us who wish to be heard and who wish not to be told what is not what is allowed and what is not allowed to be said, because somebody in a moderator's room uh, decided that they can't they don't have a, a good answer for that, so we just have to quash it altogether. And that's literally all these yep. things are. Uh, Congressman Jordan, thank you for your reflections on nine eleven, and obviously for your continued great work. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Bob. Take care, thank you, sir. All right, that's uh, Congressman Jim Jordan. We'll take a time out here. It's nine fifty. Um, we do have another guest coming after the top of the hour, by the way, but it is 9-11 related specifically. We're going to talk to the terrorist therapist, as she is sometimes known. She is uh, uh, very knowledgeable about uh, the threat of Islamic terrorism, about 9-11 and more. We'll talk to her about where we are 22 years later in terms of the threats uh, and more. And obviously, I want you to answer my question this morning. How did 9-11 change your life? If it did, it changed my career. Essentially, it changed my career, changed my outlook on everything. I want to know what it did to you. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Always right radio on AM 1420, The Answer. South Tower, Lynn Young is carefully working her way down the stairs. On the 51st floor, Young meets Fire Marshal Ronald Buka and his partner. Buka knows the World Trade Center well. He kept a set of blueprints in his locker after investigating the 1993 bombing, convinced that terrorists would one day return to finish the job. His partner stays behind to assist Young as Buka continues climbing stairs two at a time toward the impact zone. Outside, news cameraman Jack Teliercho has gained access to the plaza between the two towers. The plaza was completely empty. There was debris everywhere. The strangest thing about being out there uh, was that the music that normally would play out in the plaza, sort of this outdoor music, was still playing on the loudspeakers. All around the towers, people can hear another sound, one they will never forget. Every couple of seconds you would hear a bang. And what that bang was was a body hitting the ground. It was the most god-awful sound you can imagine. You like, just cringe, knowing that someone else just died. Someone else just died, and someone else just died. Yeah, it was uh, it was tough to see that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I witnessed 
at least 20 people deciding to, you know, free themselves from whatever hell they were in and, uh, you know, and, and jump. And there was one girl in particular that I remember. This woman came out on some kind of a jagged beam. Uh, glass blew out, flame shot out, black smoke. The fire had now reached her floor. And um, she's standing there, and I guess she gave up hope. And uh, she blessed herself. And she looked up to the sky and put her arms out, stretched her arms out, and just jumped. I looked up and I saw sort of like a, a waving way up on like the 90th floor. There was a man wearing a suit and he was hanging out of the window and waving his suit jacket frantically, like trying to call for help. It walked out onto the ledge and behind him was a raging, raging inferno. And after uh, a few seconds, he started to kind of climb down the, 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 the face of the building. And as he was climbing down, it looked like he had some kind of rope or something. So he, he's kind of, he's making his way down, and then he lost his grip. The um, jumpers still kind of stick with a lot of people as the most enduring, tormenting memory that, uh, that, that people have, especially those who were there and who witnessed it. I said at the top of the show, uh, one of the reasons I watch all of the documentaries and uh, accounts of 9-11 that I have every year since they started being produced since, since you know, since, I guess, 2002 um, is because I learned something new every year that I didn't know before. This year, I learned through that C CBS documentary on 60 Minutes last night on the firefighters that the very first firefighter of the 343 who lost their lives, the very first one to die, wasn't killed by fire, wasn't killed by the collapse of the buildings, didn't get hit with debris. The very first firefighter who died in New York City that day was killed by a human being. One of the jumpers landed on him. One of the jump jumpers from a hundred stories in the air landed on an unsuspecting firefighter who died that way. And that just hits. This is our special 9-11 commemorative broadcast. Stay here on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. 300. 
43 members of the FDNY were gone. In a tradition where the job is handed down in families, many lost fathers, sons, and brothers. Guys I had worked with both retired and active, saying to me, Petey, uh, you know, have you seen my son? And, uh, and, you know, firefighter, young firefighter coming up, you know, chief, have you seen my father? You know, I knew them, and I, I, uh, I just said no. I didn't have the courage to tell him what I knew to be true. Among the fallen were Peter Gancy and 71-year-old Deputy Fire Commissioner William Fian, who had gone with Gancy to rescue the trapped. Pete Hayden climbed atop an engine to address the living. I yelled out, um, you know, we, we just lost a, a lot of guys here today. Let's have a, a moment of silence. And, uh, well, I took my helmet off. And um, I we held it. I held it. And uh, after a while, I put my helmet back on. They put their helmets back on. I said, okay, we got a job to do. Let's do it. Do you look back and wonder, how did I survive? And 343 members did not. Yeah. Um... I didn't think about it as much. We were crazy busy. I was working 18 hours a day. And then it hit me. I said, I'm here. You know, I mean, I, I get home and I'm tired and there was always food on the table waiting for me when I came home, that, no matter what time I came home. And, um, I'm lying in bed. And I ask my wife, why me? And she said, did you ever think there was a job for you to do? You know, we talk an awful lot on these 9-11 commemorative shows that I've been doing now for 22 years and uh, about the victims and about those that suffered. We don't talk as much about the heroes. Um, phenomenal job yesterday by CBS and 60 Minutes for doing exactly that. The heroes who, who knew they weren't saying see you later when they hugged one another before they started climbing tower stairs. They knew they were saying goodbye because they were going to die. They knew there was a very strong likelihood they were not coming out. Even if they didn't know the building was going to collapse, they knew there was a very strong likelihood. And uh, so focusing on the heroes of the day is equally important. Thank you so much for being with us on this um, 11th morning of the ninth month in the year of our Lord, 2023. It's our special 9-11 commemorative show. We've been doing it every single year since the tragedy. And joining me now to talk about what, well, maybe we'll start with what you just heard, survivor's guilt from that one individual firefighter interviewed by uh, Scott Pelley on, on 60 Minutes last night. Why did I survive and all of those other guys died? Survivor's guilt is a real thing, and it's something that only really trained uh, mental, or, uh, mental health professionals probably can understand. Perhaps like Dr. Um, Carol Lieberman, she is uh, often known as the terrorist therapist. Not that she is a terrorist nor a 
therapist for mm-hmm. terrorists, but the issue of terrorism. Uh, she is a trained psychiatrist. Uh, she's dedicated her life since 9-11 to helping families keep calm and carry on. And she joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Dr. Lieberman, good morning. It's good to talk to you. How are you? Good morning. Thank you. So let's start right there. Um, there's a lot of a lot of ground I want to cover with you this morning, and I'm so glad you do what you do and you dedicate yourself to helping people deal with the trauma of terrorism and terrorist acts and so forth. Um, start with survivor's guilt. The, the more documentaries I watch every single year as new ones are produced, the more articles I read about individuals who survived, and they're, they're just... They're devastated by the trauma that comes from the fact that their some of their their best friends, sometimes family members, and others who were with them did not survive, and they can't understand why they were allowed to live, and how that haunts them. Can you speak to survivor's guilt? Sure. Yes, it can be very haunting, which is very unfortunate because um, you know it is important to look at it as you have a job to do you survive because there is something important for you to do in this in your lifetime you know you still have something very important to do and um if some people just get crippled by the survivor's guilt and they you know they don't move on to um looking for what it is that they can do to help the world um and it can it can just you know, which is really sad because here they survived, and yet if it's if they don't make good use out of that, then um, so the the best way to deal with it, first of all, is therapy, and second of all, is to do- start doing things, even small things like volunteering um, for some, you know, whether it's reading to kids or older people or just some pick some volunteer work that you particularly would like. And um, and gradually, you know, when you start seeing that you how much you're helping people, that can start you on your way to uh, to realizing, you know, you do have a lot to give. Yeah, that's very well said. You know, I think the greatest example, I was just thinking of this, it occurred to me as you were talking about the greatest example of this. It was fictionalized in Saving Private Ryan, although the reality of the D-Day invasion, of course, is, 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 is there. But, you know, that's exactly what Private James Ryan meant at the end of the movie as he was kneeling over the grave of, uh, of, of the captain, uh, uh, Captain Miller, you know, Tom Hanks' character. Um, you know, he stood there in, in tears and, and he said to his wife, tell me I've lived a good life because all he could remember mm. was, was the captain as he died in his dying breath said, earn this, earn the fact that you are mm. going to survive mm. all of this. And that he felt like mm-hmm. for his entire life, you know, again, it's a fictional story, but I'm sure it's real for many. You know, if I survive and other people didn't, I better live an extraordinary life in order to make up for it. Yes, that sometimes can be crippling, too. You know, thinking that you have to do, you have to fly to the moon or something to right. be uh, worth, <laughs> to to be um, equal to having been saved when others died. But, you know, obviously it doesn't have to be something that, there aren't many people who can um, claim something that tremendous, but there are lots of little ways that you can be kind and help people and so on. I mean, if, even if you did one kind act a day after you survived, that would be worth it. Very true. We're talking to Dr. Carol Lieberman. She's got a website, terroristtherapist.com, among other things. She also has a radio show and a blog and a bunch of other important things. Tell us about um, what you've been doing for 22 years now since 9-11. Let's zoom out a little bit away from the specifics like that. But but you have been literally providing therapy for people who have been impacted by terrorism. 
Well, I've been doing a lot of things. Um, when 9-11 happened, it changed my life. I'm a born and bred New Yorker. Uh, I had already moved to California at the time, but my heart is still in New York. And so I asked myself, what can I do? This is going to be the most um, traumatic event, not just 9-11, but terrorism is going to be the worst plague, in a sense, um, that will uh, that will that we will have to deal with. And what can I do for, to help people? And so, you know, as a psychiatrist, as a media, um, uh, talk, you know, interviewee, um, as uh, an author. So I put all of these skills to, together, and I started actually by doing a uh, an audio video program that was play, played in airlines, airline entertainment, uh, because people were very afraid to fly after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Then um, I've written two books on terrorism, and I, you know, give talks, and I do media interviews, and treat people, of course. Um, and so, so pretty much, and, and, and particularly, you know, more and more these past few years, um, I have been working really hard to make sure that people don't forget. Because, you know, the, that's a slogan, um, never forget 9-11, right? Bumper right. sticker. Right. But, but people, people need to ha- do more than have it be a bumper sticker. Because we are having some, um, well, so what I've done in the, since the 20th, this is the third year, that I have had a mobile billboard going around New York City, Manhattan, and Washington, D.C. And on it, there's a video that I created, a music video, you know, patriotic music and content that has to do with why we should never forget, how to talk to your kids about terrorism, um, or what kind of symptoms may be triggered on the anniversaries and for what you should go to therapy for, uh, and so on. And so it's, is it's that video available? I, I apologize, Doctor Lieberman. Is that video available for other people to see, or is it just what you put on the mobile yeah. billboard? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> yes, yes. If, if, uh, for people not in New York City and Washington D.C., they can go to my website, um, terroristtherapist.com, and the video is on the website. Okay. Okay, uh, I, I want to I want to see that. That's very interesting to me that you put that together, and uh, and I'm sure it's something a lot of people would like to see on this day. I want to go back to what you started to say a second ago about never forget. I said the same thing this morning. I've been, I've been saying the same thing for the last several years on this commemorative show that I do, um, because a lot of people have started to forget, and now I'm wondering if we're seeing more than just forgetting, but an attempt to essentially cancel 9-11 uh, as being a, you know, such an historic day for our country, because for the first time, the American president on this date is not in D.C. or in, or in uh, New York City at Ground Zero or in Shanksville. For the first time, he's ignoring all of that out in, in Alaska. Um, and I feel like yeah. that's symbolic, I think, maybe of an attempt to somehow whitewash this from, from history. And I don't understand why, but what do you think? Absolutely. Um, I have been ranting about this for years. Well, particularly the last two years with Biden, the Obama-Biden White House. Um, last year, I was ranting about how they let the Tribute Museum, the 9-11 Tribute Museum, die. You know, that's a museum that was in Lower Manhattan, along with, of course, the, uh, the National Museum, the larger museum. But the Tribute Museum, they both were important. The Tribute Museum was a smaller but a more personal museum because it was created by and, and the docents were 
people who were either first responders or family members of the victims and so on. So it had a very personal feel to it. I was led, uh, The docent that led me around was someone who was a first responder, and he had been working at 9-11 you know, on, at ground zero for so long that he got cancer from you know the cancerogenic building material. Um, now, so we have, and the reason why they were, you know, they were running out of money is because of the lockdowns from COVID, that there weren't people going to the museum. So did, did New York save it? Did the White House save it? No, nobody saved it. Meanwhile, they're giving billions of dollars to the Taliban and other terrorists, and it would have cost, you know, a lot less than that to keep the museum afloat. Now, the uh, the one museum that is, that is left um, the New York, the, the governor, um, they have decided to charge a congestion charge, a toll for cars going to lower Manhattan. Now, it isn't in place quite yet. There is some controversy, but that, you know, there are a lot of politicians who want to make that happen. So if people have to pay $23 to be in lower Manhattan, that's going to take away from the people going to Ground Zero and going to the National Museum. Then, um, as you mentioned, Biden is in Alaska. He was there, or is going to be there for less than two hours. Um, you know, he's the first president to not be at a site of the attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, he um, had planned to, there was a, a plan afoot, you know, clearly endorsed by the White House, to give the remaining Guantanamo terrorists a plea deal instead of the death penalty. Now, though there are five terrorists left, Obama let a lot of them go, let them go back to their countries, and of course they're still engaging actively in terrorist activities. Um, but included in the five who are left is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the architect of 9/11 under um, Osama bin Laden, of course, and um, and they were going. So they sent a letter to the families and said, you know, we're thinking of doing this. Really, it was kind of a done deal, but they it was just sort of a pro forma that they sent this letter. And they didn't expect quite the um, outrage that came after that from the families. And, you know, of course, doing this in right before nine, the, this anniversary is very bad optics. So somebody must have tapped Joe on the shoulder and said, yeah, this was, these are bad optics. Shouldn't have done this this time. So he walked it back. But it's just temporarily. He walked it back. He blamed his or he attributed his walking it back to the fact that part of the plea deal was that they wanted to keep having meals together and prayers together. Now, who knew <laughs> that they were having meals together and prayers together as it was, these five right. terrorists, you know, in Guantanamo? So he said he didn't want to agree with that part of the plea deal. But that was just an excuse. Now, even worse, well, they're all bad. New York City, Mayor Adams. He has decided to give or to enable them to have uh, mosques, to have loudspeakers for a call to prayer every Friday night and during the month of Ramadan. Well, these are this call to prayer is going to, you know, I mean, New York City, you can hear these things for a very far distance, especially if lots of mosques do this, which they probably will, um, which will br- trigger the PTSD in New Yorkers from 9-11. And, um, you know, may well increase to more than just Fridays and Ramadan. Um, you know, this is so, not only will it trigger PTSD, but it'll cause Islamophobia because people will be angry at having to hear this sound 
um, you know, as often as, as it's going to be. I'm angry just hearing about it. Yes, so am I. <laughs> yes. So this is uh, so this is some some pretty incredible stuff. If you just turned it on, we're talking with Dr. Carol Lieberman, the terrorist therapist. Um, she is a, a trained psychi- psychiatrist working in Beverly Hills. Uh, she's an author, best-selling author, and uh, does a whole lot of other things. You should Jeff, definitely check the website. I'm going to look for that uh, music video as well. You have um, a note on uh, one of the substacks uh, that uh, you know told us about your work with 9/11. That the left wants to replace September 11th which we were just talking about the cancellation thereof, uh, with January 6th. Can you explain that? Yes. That is a part of why they want you to forget 9-11, because they want people to think of terrorists as the January 6th uh, protesters or whatever you want to call them, trespassers, um, who are getting outrageous uh, jail time. And, uh, you know, they were calling PTA parents terrorists for objecting to the things that are going on in school. Um, they're cozying up to terrorists. I mean, of course, the surrender in in um, in Afghanistan, there are no words for that. I mean, how horrendous that was to the servicemen who served in, in Afghanistan, gave their life, gave their limbs, the families of the servicemen, um, the fact that that now will make other servicemen not want to join. You know, like after 9-11, everybody felt so patriotic and they signed up to, for the military. But now that, you know, they people have seen what thanks they get, right, after 20 years, um, Biden surrenders to the Taliban and, and really uh, helps the other terrorist organizations. I mean, there's al-Qaeda and there's ISIS also in Afghanistan, and now there are no troops, Western troops, um, to bother them as they make their plot. Um, so they're giving billions of dollars to the Taliban and other terrorists. And Obama really uh, is behind all of this, all of this. When he was president, he made us more vulnerable to terrorists than any other president. Um, I think in part that has to do with his own childhood um, being raised in madrasas. I think whatever, you know, the, the jihad um, philosophies that they were talking about, you know, it had everybody gets affected by what they're exposed to in childhood. And I think that that's a big part of it. I know he converted to Christianity, but I think, um, you know, you can take the, <laughs> you can take the something out of the person, but, you know, you can take the, you know what I'm talking about. I, I, do, I don't I think do. that that has left him. Um, and I think that that's really, maybe, I, I, I would give him the benefit of the doubt and say it's unconscious, but really I think it's quite conscious, and I think that all of this is quite conscious. They're cozying up. I mean, look at the borders. Um, there are known terrorists, terrorist people on the on the terrorist watch list coming across the southern and northern borders. By the dozens. There are af- by the dozens. Yes. Millions of people totally collectively, but dozens of people on the terrorist watch list. Carol, you're Dr. Lieberman, you're exactly right about that. Dr. Lieberman, we're out of time here, so I just want to uh, thank you again for uh, the work that you're doing with people, particularly those suffering trauma from terrorist experiences or uh, even relatable experiences. I'll send people again to terroristtherapist.com, uh, see your video there. Thank you so much for your uh, great work, and thank you for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, it's 1027. We're going to take a time out. We're going to come back. I'm going to find that video. I'm going to look at it, maybe even play it for you if there's an audio component of it that we can do. But um, the rest of the broadcast now is yours and mine, and that is to answer the question. 
How did September 11, 2001 and the immediate aftermath thereof change your life? If it changed your life. You've heard my story. I'm sharing other stories with you, but I want to hear your story. 216-901-0945. We'll be back. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Right away, I got a deep sense that uh, we were going to lose a lot of firefighters this day. Division One Commander Peter Hayden met Battalion Chief Joe Pfeiffer in the lobby of the burning tower. Well, I knew that we weren't going to be able to put out the fire. So the order of the day was to search and evacuate as many people as we could, uh, and then we were going to back away. The fire was 93 floors above. Elevators were out. So firefighters climbed tight stairwells, shouldering 75 pounds and more. And I thought we would have enough time to get the people out, and uh, everybody that was above the impact of the plane, um, we were pretty much sure were uh, either dead already or going to die. There was a lot of people jumping out already. 1,355 people were trapped above the fire. The Boeing 767 had severed all three stairwells, leaving one way out. Jumpers, baby, jumpers. Come on. All right, Division 1, be advised. Uh, Battalion 2, advise you have jumpers from the World Trade Center. <laughs> We heard a loud thud, and I knew that was somebody that either fell or jumped from the building. The first firefighter killed was hit by a fellow human being. This is the first time in 22 years of covering this that I knew that. I did not know about that part of the story until last night on that 60-minute special. The first firefighter killed out of the 343 that would lose their lives that day was killed by a jumper who landed on him. Words fail to describe the enormity of that. They just they just do. How did 9-11 change your life? It changed my career. It changed my outlook. It changed my desire to learn more about history and about terrorist threats, about what had gone on throughout the 90s. I studied and I completely, uh, I completely changed everything about myself. I mean, I really did. I really did. It was that impactful. And if it wasn't for you, that's okay. But if it did change you in some measurable way, I would love to hear your story. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. We're going to go to um, Laura in Wadsworth, who's answering that question, how 9-11 changed you. Uh, Laura, good morning. Go right ahead. Good morning, Bob, on this very somber anniversary. Um, until September 11th, 2001, I never realized the level of evil that exists in our world. Um, it was a real wake-up call for me. I remember that day very vividly. And much like you, Bob, every year um, I've been glued to the TV when they have the specials and the documentaries on TV. And uh, much like your wife, my husband didn't want to relive the horror of that day either. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I visited the museum in New York City quite a few years ago, and um, I didn't want to leave. As gut-wrenching as it was, I felt like I had to gut it out to honor all the people that died that day. And I don't know if you've been there, Bob, but there's an alcove that's dedicated to the people that jumped that day. And um, that was that was the hardest part, I think, of the tour, going through that little alcove. And it, it was kind of, you know, you, you know, people don't really talk, but you can hear them. There's murmuring and there's a lot of sniffling. And uh, it was a prof- profound experience when I visited there. Um, and I, too, feel like we should never, ever, ever forget that day, much like we should not try to erase from our collective memories what's been done to us the past three and a half years. Um, and frighteningly, what they may try to continue to do to us. And I don't think um, they want us to look into the truth about September 11th. Um, and I feel sure that you probably haven't had a chance to watch the documentary that I uh, linked in my email to you on Friday. No. Nope. Um, it raises more questions than it answers. Um, but one thing I want to say is that um, over the last two years, once I discovered a lot of truth, um, I've experienced a condition called ontological shock. And the definition of that is the state of being forced to question one's fundamental understanding of reality, existence, or the nature of being. Um, but I want to end my comment on something that's heartwarming about that horrific day. Um, and it's kind of fascinating that very few people have heard this story And I think the powers that shouldn't be do not want us to realize the collective power that we the people have when we all come together to help one another. So this story is how Americans instantaneously pulled off the largest sea rescue in human history during that day on September 11, 2001. Over 150 boats evacuated over 500,000 civilians. It was the largest in American history, bigger than the evacuation of the Allied troops from France. And they dropped off people and went back for more over and over again. And they helped transport the rescuers to the island and provided water from the harbor to the firefighters. And I think it's a story everyone should know. So if you look it up on YouTube, it's called Boat Lift, Remembering 9-11. And make sure when you type in there, you use the numbers 9-11, or you won't find the actual video. It's... um, I believe it's narrated by Tom Hanks. Boat well, lifts remembering nine eleven. Yeah, that is. Uh, see, this is the reason I'm glad I do this every year. Like I said, I learned something new about <clears throat> the first firefighter uh, to die. I learned something new about mm-hmm. the first actual casualty of nine eleven that is recorded by the FBI, which was a passenger on flight eleven, uh, the American mm-hmm. eleven, which hit the first tower. And now this about the boat lift uh, documentary um, or, or video. I'm going to look that up myself. Um, yeah, I didn't is, know about it either. Yeah, that's 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 phenomenal. And you know, I actually thought about that um, when we visited New York in uh, and and I went through the uh, we went through my family and I went through the um, memorial uh, or excuse me the uh, what's the word I'm looking for the uh, museum the 911 museum. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered the same thing is because we you know we visited New York we did the whole tourist thing we went to you know the statue as well and and just looking over at the. Uh, Freedom Tower, which was going up, uh, you know, I just wondered how 
uh, why didn't they just continue to boat people over? Why didn't they go and rescue people because people were trapped and you know on the island on Manhattan? And uh, come to find out, now they did. There was a there was a mm-hmm. massive effort there. I did not know that. You didn't see any of that in the aerial shots, even of uh, no. you know of the burning towers or the. Of course, after they fell, you couldn't see anything for miles right. because of the you know the, the the fog of smoke and dust and, and everything that was created. But I but I didn't know that, and that's really a good thing to know. I, will, uh, I think one thing that's important to realize is we've been shown what they want us to see, Bob, not what really happened. I think that's so exactly that correct. That is exactly correct. Yeah. Laura, thank you for the call. I appreciate that very much. Let's go to uh, Charlie in Brown Hill next. Charlie, you're on the air. Go ahead, sir. How did uh, 9-11 affect you? Hey, Bob, thanks for taking the call. Sure. Yeah, it still affects me. Um, I had, uh, the year before, I signed up with the Red Cross as a volunteer going through all their mm-hmm. training. Started doing house fires, probably did about 15 of them, and then that happened. I was called that day. I was there that night. And I was actually the first Red Cross responder unit to hit ground zero. And uh, we we were working with all the thousands of people that were up on the heap, just digging with their hands, uh, trying to find somebody. And I'll just tell you, the, the biggest effect, I, you know, we're talking about the, the cop that was killed by a jumper. Well, I saw hundreds of people who had jumped and their bodies were hanging in the trees, and it was just a horrific thing. I still have nightmares about that today. And it, it's changed me. It's made me, uh, you know, ultra-patriotic. So, you know, but it's been 22 years. And still, I'm very afraid that this what's going to happen again to our country, or worse. Charlie, thank you. Um, I appreciate your sharing that story, and it's amazing that you went there to uh, to respond and help. I know a lot of other people did, too. Um Thanks for the call. I had a a friend of mine that I graduated high school with who was a physician. He went to uh, went to University of Toledo, played baseball, then got his medical degree from Yale, and he was back home in Cleveland at that time. And I talked to him as he was taking off, and I said, "What are you doing?" And he said, "I'm going to New York." I said, "You're driving there?" He said, "Yeah, they're going to need every doctor they can find." And of course, as we all know, that was not the case because all of the medical personnel that was assembled to triage the wounded and the you know the the, the injured um, they were almost all unnecessary because there weren't there were very few wounded compared to those who died once the buildings collapsed it was most of the victims were dead they were not wounded and in need of medical care as uh, he came back shortly thereafter but he went and so your story certainly um, relevant to me, and, uh, and and thank God for that. And I can't imagine the trauma, truly, of seeing the bodies uh, lying in the streets or wherever. Um, but there's a cameraman um, that was on the scene that was recording everything, uh, and he told his story in a in a video that I want to share right now it's obviously you don't, you don't need the video it's just him in front of a black screen but I want you to listen since Charlie just talked about the trauma of seeing uh some of the bodies for those who were you know again forced to choose do I die by fire or by fall and um I don't know very many people who would choose the fire you know um hundreds chose to die by falling um, and as traumatic as that 
obviously would be for anybody who was in the building, those who were down on the ground and watching it all happen suffered so much as well. And you can kind of hear it in this. So they, they were, and it was odd because I was filming the buildings and every time I would put the camera up, it would just be the burning building. And then when I brought the camera down, their people would jump. So, and it's not like I wanted to get them on tape, but I was basically, you know, somehow stopped from doing that. From, you know, you saw it yourself. I saw it. Yeah, no, I saw it. I saw a tr a lot of people jumping from that front side, or from that east side, I should say. Um, there was a hole in, in that tower. Um, the one that I really remember is a, uh, a woman. It had to be a woman because of her jacket. It was, uh, the, it was like a blue, um, uh, like a real royal blue coat. And it, she just came down um, kind of straight, head first, with uh, another guy holding her hand. And uh, that's the one that, 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 that I can remember. She, uh, If I could share with you the anguish that he shows, I would, but I can't. This is from a, um, a video, which if you wish to view it for yourself, again, to kind of truly make sure you never forget and share, it's from the Camera Planet Archive, the Camera Planet Archive, which you can look up on YouTube. This is 20 years later, and this man is still so broken up by what he saw, he can just hardly describe. Yeah, she... They looked really... Um, when they did come down, though, I don't know, I just, I just watched them. Couldn't take I just watched them come down. And they would... Uh, the speed at which they came down was so fast. I've never seen anything drop that fast. It was like, you know, terminal velocity, whatever you call it, but it was like everything else flies a lot slower than the bodies coming down. They were dropping. And you could tell when they came down. But at that point, I never, you know, these figure... From where I was standing, there's a, a facade, and they were dropping behind the facade. Um, and, uh, you know, they looked, they looked like they were at peace. They didn't look like, um, they weren't flailing, they weren't yelling, they weren't screaming. They were uh, just floating, but fast. Thank <laughs> you. 
But uh, that's the one, the lady in that blue coat, it's her coat was so blue. She was holding the, that guy's hand. I don't know. And she's. And there was that. There was another guy that did it. Off of the. Uh, the. The, the other tower that he did like he did it not the very top of it just like launched I couldn't believe it just like just, just like launched himself right off just full on full body like nothing even matters when it just did it it's unbelievable and that was it and then I just turned after I saw that um, after I saw that um, you know I just kind of went home um, two things in response one uh, this was actually recorded 16 years ago. So when I said it was 20 years later and the emotion is still like that, that's not accurate. It was six years later at that particular point. It doesn't change the the, the statement, however. Um, and number two, I hope people understand when we talk about victims and heroism from 9-11, you know, we, we reserve most of our heroic uh, praise for first responders, firefighters, and police officers who lost their lives that day, and also for victims in the towers who saved other lives, who helped carry people who could not walk down the stairs, those who were able to get out before the buildings collapsed. There were so many stories of extraordinary heroism from amongst the victims. Um, but I'll say this, guys like this, he's a hero. And I'm talking about anybody that had a camera, whether they were professional cameramen like him, filming all of this to bring it to the masses, or amateurs who kept their presence of mind in the in, in full view of terror, in full view of trauma, in full view of death. They kept their presence of mind enough to record this for the sake of sharing it with everyone. Without the video footage that we have from, from like I said, from the professionals to the amateurs, we wouldn't understand the gravity. We wouldn't be able to, quote, never forget, as we promised. We wouldn't be able to share with Generation Z and the generation after them, whatever they're going to call it the younger people who are going to we're not going to be able to keep all this alive if this video didn't exist if these people didn't stand there and let their own minds and eyes be traumatized by these things by the sight of of death in such personal ways as people leaping off of 110 story floors and choosing to die in the air 
and on the ground rather than by flame. I mean, the, the, the easy thing to do would be what? To turn away. How many people, when you see somebody suffering a great trauma, can keep watching it? Most people cannot. You turn away. You even turn away when you know it's fake in the movies. It's like, oh, you cover your eyes if something really gruesome is about to happen. The people who kept their cameras trained on these people who were suffering gruesome fates are heroes. They're heroes. Because they didn't do this for shock value. They didn't do this to get clicks and likes. They did this to document, because this is before social media really anyway, but to document what was going on so that everybody knows what it was like, what it felt like, what it sounded like, and what it looked like for those who were there. And that's the only way you ensure that you you always remember and never forget is to is to be able to have those all of those senses, your sight, your sound, your 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 feelings and even about this to have them um, to have them be observed. All right, it's uh, 1056-216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. I am really, really sorry to see the same result uh, on the radio that I was getting on social media last night when I asked people, how did 9-11 change your life? Not many people have an answer to that question. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it didn't change their lives. Or maybe they just don't know how to put it into words. But I'm looking for you to do exactly that. Always Right Radio continues on AM 1420. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. It's eight minutes after 11 o'clock on this uh, Monday. It's the... 11th morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord, 2023, and it's the day that I do my annual 9-11 commemoration show, as you can imagine. And um, we, we've covered a lot of ground that, that has been trod before, um, but we've also found some new things, and that's why I do this every year, so I can learn some new things, and I can discover more information to make sure that I keep my part of the pact, which is never forget um, and to try to share that with anybody else that's within the sound of my voice, and I have a microphone and a transmitter to do it, I'm going to do it every year um, to try to make sure that everyone else keeps their pact. But but I, I learn new things in addition to um, you know re- re- rehashing some of the things we already knew. For example, about the uh, about the the jumpers. But 
But today, this year, something else that I learned in an article I read yesterday, getting ready for this morning's show, um, is more about what happened with a, a pilot and a bunch of passengers on a TWA flight that very morning in 2001. Now, if you've heard me through the years talking about how whenever I fly, if I get a window seat, I I almost reflexively press the side of my face. It's not necessarily clean, but I press the side of my face up against the window to try to see forward, to see if I can see anything near the front of the plane or how far in front of the plane I can see. And I did that to find out, I mean, literally just to try to put myself in the seat and in the shoes of those who who hit the buildings. I wanted to know if the passengers knew they were directly in in the path or on a path, on a course, to hit the the towers. And so I try to look up there and see, and I can never see. Uh, It's not physically possible, but I try because I want to know if they knew what was going on. And other than they were being hijacked. And um, this article that I read last night on The Blaze is pretty pretty doggone close to that. Let me share it. A TWA pilot needed to take evasive action on September 11, 2001 to dodge one of the hijacked airliners, the one that crashed into the World Trade Center South Tower. An alleged resurfaced video shows the pilot and the passengers talking about how close they were to crashing into one of the planes used in the attacks. The New York Post recently reported, quote, the pilot on TWA Flight 3 took evasive action twice before safely safely landing, first to avoid colliding with United 175, which struck the World Trade Center, and then Flight 93, which crashed crashed in Pennsylvania according to a New York-based flight attendant who was on the crew. The hero pilot, identified only as George, is seen on video giving an interview to ABC World News Tonight, the very day of the attacks on 9-11, the day after, beg your pardon, of, uh, after the attacks on 9-11. ABC News national correspondent Dean Reynolds asks the pilot, you dodged one of the aircraft that hit the tower? And the answer was, yeah, well, he was up there when we were coming from New York. So what we had to do was, they, meaning flight control, were not talking to him, and he was changing his heading and his altitude, so they cleared us to deviate. However, we had to stay away from him. The pilot added, we had him in sight. It was a nice day in New York. We were out of the clouds, which helped a lot. We just, you know, dodged him. And this is where it gets interesting based on what I was describing, what I do when I get on a plane. Passengers also interviewed for the news segment about the near miss on 9-11 said, I thought we were going to crash. I thought the plane was going to crash. This, this horrified passenger noted that the near collision happened right after takeoff and the plane was shaking after it went down and came back up. And you can imagine that. You know, sudden changes in altitude do indeed make the, make the aircraft kind of feel unsteady and it shakes. But it wasn't your normal taking off routine, the passenger said. And then you could just see a plane just bypass us really close. And I thought maybe it was a near miss. End quote. That is astounding enough. As far as, again, the, 
the feeling of terror on board because you know, we talk about the people in the buildings, we talk about the people on the ground, we talk about the jumpers, we talk about the first responders. We don't talk about the people on the planes very often with the exception of Flight 93. But this is a different plane that was not involved in it but had a bird's eye view literally of it. After learning, according to, let me back up here, passengers on that TWA flight also could see the World Trade Center on on fire from the first plane the uh, from uh, this is uh, the north tower because of American 11 the TWA Boeing 767 took off in the morning of September 11th from JFK just 14 miles from the World Trade Center the hijacked airlines uh, flight 11 American Airlines flight 11 slammed into the north tower at 846 after learning that 175 had smashed into the south tower TWA flight attendants reportedly pushed food carts up against the cockpit door to guard against a possible hijacking on their plane. This is all new information. And that's why I watch and read as much as I possibly can each and every year, because we learn things that are new. We know about the heroism on Flight 93. We know about one would-be here, I told you this morning, um, on American 11, who was recorded by the FBI as the first casualty of 9-11. He was a passenger who was stabbed in the back as he got up to try to confront and stop two hijackers. He was stabbed by a third hijacker in the back. This is even before the, air, the flight attendants were stabbed and before they breached the cockpit and stabbed uh, the, uh, the pilots. So we're learning new stuff every day. The flight attendant on TWA recounted the chilling announcement on the plane speaker, saying, quote, This is a national emergency. By order of the federal government, any plane still in the sky in 20 minutes will be shot down by friendly fire. That TWA flight was bound for St. Louis, but was rerouted to Dayton following the terrorist takeover. Retired FDNY Lieutenant Charlie Hubbard was on TWA Flight 3 and said the pilot saved our lives without a doubt. He recalled recently the gut-wrenching experience on Twitter. He said about 20 to 30 minutes later, we nearly had a mid-air collision with one of the hijacked planes. After the frightening, dramatic maneuver, our flight crew ex- executed, uh, our flight crew executed to avoid the other aircraft. We were grounded in Dayton, Ohio. The flight attendant told the Post that the that's the New York Post that the TWA plane had a second near collision with a hijacked 9-11 plane. The unnamed crew member said the TWA, TWA plane missed the tail of doomed United Airlines Flight 53 by about 500 feet. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place here. Flight 93 by 500 feet. Flight 93 depart, departed Newark. Terrorists reportedly planned to crash it into a government building in D.C., but courageous passengers foiled their wicked plot. Their plane ended up crashing in the field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So so this is all new stuff. They, there were some people in the air that day who saw the towers burning and, moreover, saw that they were nearly on a collision course with an airplane, which, of course, had veered and deviated off of its um air traffic control approved course to be able to do their their maneuvers to swing around and head toward lower Manhattan. So naturally they would come potentially into conflict with other aircraft. And now we know that is the reality. That is something that almost happened. So that's a that's a pretty dramatic new piece of information. Um I want to share this now too. Um as we try to 
work, you know, we're half an hour from the end of the show right now. I want to try to work toward some of the more uplifting things that happened. On the third day after the actual attacks, as the cleanup and the hunt for survivors was still going on, uh, fires were still building on heaps of, of twisted steel and, and, uh, you know, and debris. And the president of the United States went down to ground zero. A firefighter introduced him and helped him up to the top of a truck, a fire truck, again, amidst the twisted metal, and handed him a bullhorn. And the firefighter started to get down as if to give the stage to the president alone. You know, like, I'm not going to stand up here next to him. I'm going to give him the stage and get out of the way. The president grabbed him and would not let him get down. And he put his arm around him. And he stood there, and he grabbed that bullhorn with his right hand as he held this firefighter by the shoulder, around his shoulders with the other hand, and gave, um, I think, a command performance of what leadership in a presidency is supposed to look like. That doesn't mean that George Bush was a perfect president. Do not even go there. This is not about that. This is not about Iraq. This is not about anything else. That day... The nation needed a leader to rise. And that day, a leader rose. I want you all to know that America today, America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! I can hear you! The rest of the world hears you! And the people... might need to see it not just hear it on the radio to feel what i just felt um i i got goosebumps and it's 22 years later i got goosebumps i'm not kidding you there are chills that go up your spine when you see the faces of all of the individuals around him as they screamed when he said they'll hear from all of us soon and when he and they started chanting USA, you should have just seen the pride in their faces. You should see the determination in their faces. It, if it doesn't move you, you're probably dead already inside. It was. It, that's exactly how it felt. Um, we're going to take a time out and come right back. Okay, 1125. <clears throat> Thanks for being with us on Always Right Radio. It's uh, It's been a 
couple of really emotional hours of recalling, and this is what it should be. If you're not saddened and still angered by 9-11 22 years later, then you did indeed, uh, you, you have decided to uh, uh, break your pact. You broke the pact. We all took a pact. We, took a, we made an oath to never forget. And if you're not still saddened, then you broke it. If you're not angry, then you broke it. And you can be forgiving if you wish. Um, but, um, but if you're not emotionally struck by the memory of things that went, ha- that went down that day, then you, you have broken the pact. And I hope that is not the case with many of us. Seth uh, is, uh, is our producer, and uh, I value Seth's opinion greatly. And I want to get yours now, Seth. Where were you? What did you do? How did it change you? Uh, well, much like you, I, I was doing radio, but I was doing something a lot different. I was on WMMS back in the day, the rock station here, mm-hmm. and I was doing mornings. And so we were watching on TV after the first plane had hit, and the word around the station was it was just a commuter plane or whatever. And then as we were watching live and talking about it, the second plane hit. And the guy that I was doing the show with, the first words out of his mouth were, we're at war. And he had a brother who was a officer who was actually stationed at the base of the World Trade Center. And he was frantic, and we'd try to get hold of him for days before we actually could. Um, we were then evacuated from Tower City. That's where the station was because United 93 was actually flying over Cleveland. You've heard the audio, I'm sure. From, you know, sure. Tower. Yeah. And so we were evacuated from there. And I remember leaving, and there wasn't a plane in the sky at that point. By the time we got out of the building and we started heading over to Independence, where our studios were being built. And there wasn't a plane in the sky. I couldn't get a hold of my wife at the time. Um, kept trying and, and couldn't get a hold of her. But from that point forward, you know, I was like you we were a sports guy. I was just dumb rock guy. And I started paying a lot more attention to, you know, things that were going on and, you know, ended up working in AM radio then for almost 15 years because things are different and they were different after that day. Yeah. Um, you didn't have your 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 any children by then, right? No. Okay. Uh, what did what did your wife say when you finally did reach her? Again, it was just. I mean, she was shocked like everybody else, and you know we both were in radio just together. Speechless. Kind yeah, of? it was it was speechless. Yeah. I mean, what do you say at that point? I just like I said in my open, <clears throat> in my own situation as I held because my daughter had just been born. Yeah, I should have known you didn't have kids by then because I know how, how young your your, your uh, daughter is. Um, but my daughter was born three weeks before that, and holding her, I just, you know, you, your co-host said or your host that you were working with said uh, we're at war. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't think war. I just thought destruction. Like our country is is being destroyed, and um, and I cannot believe we brought a little life into this, an innocent life into this, because it was that shocking. Um, but uh, but that's what happens. I mean, your mind goes into a million different places, and sometimes you can form words out of those places, and sometimes you can't, uh, just because the shock takes over. And um, so you've been working on AM radio ever since then. You got away from the. Re- you know, I did the same thing. I just, yeah. 
I just, you know, it was two years later, it was 2003 when I did my first news radio job, and that's when I started to wean myself off of sports and go into things that are more important. And it's just so funny how much how much time and effort and energy I put into box scores and 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 stats and yeah. and standings and. And, and meanwhile, the world around us is crumbling, and the world around us is changing, and there's going to be, you know, we can either change it for the better or allow it to continue to change for the worse. And that's when I just, I, I'm so not into the sports world anymore because of that. The concerts are a good escape, but they don't change anything. And, right. Uh, and the games are good for an escape, too. That, but, that's exactly right. Yeah, but they don't change anything. That's very well said. Um, we went to uh, Ground Zero, my wife and I, um, shortly after... 9-11, maybe a few years after 9-11, when it was still uh, a lot of just rubble and, and tore up buildings and that metal cross and everything that you see on TV. Yeah. And, um, you could feel the pain. You could feel the, the souls. You could feel the devastation that happened there. Because we were there before they built the museums and the tower and World yeah. One or whatever. And it was, uh, you could still see the dust on, on the buildings next to the, on the Burger King that was next to the site. and I mean, it was just intense. Well, I, I, I went there one month after. It was in mid-October um, because the Raiders played a game against the Giants, and I was traveling with the Raiders. And um, the play-by-play voice of the Raiders, with whom I worked, knew somebody who lived in New York City in an apartment building where they had roof access. And it was indeed uh, over the ground zero area so he took us up and we looked down upon all of it and said this is six weeks later and the ruins were still smoldering yeah um it was the most surreal sight that i had ever seen again that was six weeks after the actual uh strike and uh there are some things you'll never forget uh and uh, maybe that had as much to do with the way i am about this every year on this date as anything but um like I said, I'm committed to uh, making sure we don't break our pact, that we never forget. And Amen. It was, uh, it was life-changing for many of us. Uh, I know it's news time. We've got one more segment to go. If you want to be a part, if you want to share, uh, dial us up now. We'll be right back. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always Right Radio with Bob Franz on The Answer. All right, it's 11.37. We do have some people who want to share their experiences and maybe how they've changed since the day 22 years ago today that changed our country and our world. Um, We're going to go to um, Diane in West Park. Diane, you're on the air, fire away. Thank you, Bob, and thank you so much for this program this morning. Um, I am afraid that I only um, tuned in right before President Bush spoke so eloquently to the crowd, and I I burst out crying, really. Um, If this day doesn't continue to make us sad, um, like you said, there's something wrong with us. Um, I, I do, I am afraid that, um, it's hard to fathom how, how little, how far we've gone from the trajectory we were once on after 9-11. Americans seem to be, um, so many seem to be still asleep. 
and unaware of the dangers that still assail us. It's hard to look around at, uh, in, at, you know, just looking around your neighborhood, it seems like nothing has changed. I'm afraid maybe we need, God forbid, another such reminder of all that is at stake. We live in, in America right now that we hardly recognize. And I think but for conservative talk radio, um, I would not be where at the um, understanding I have today because 9-11, after 9-11, was the first time I ever became interested in what was going on around me in the country, in the government. And uh, it wasn't until then that I even got interested in who our next president was going to be. But uh, this day uh, is forever a game changer for us, or it should be. Yeah, you know, Diana, you made great points, and thank you for the call. Um, Sadly, I think much of the unity um, that came when President Bush galvanized the nation and brought everybody together it was it was an illusion it was it was fake unity it was yeah we're all st- you know stunned and shocked at the moment so usa usa let's all come together and put aside our differences but once the shock wore off and um sensibilities returned and thus with them ideologies returned that um that that unity was 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 very short lived. It wasn't real, and I would hate to think that we suffer something else like this to return to that. Because again, it would be short lived. We cannot suffer anything like this if we can't generate real unity from a belief in what is best for the country and for one another. Uh, then a then a pseudo uh, moment of unity, I think, is certainly not worth our, our our suffering. But I thank you for what you just said. Vince is in Westlake. Vince, go right ahead, sir. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for taking my call. And uh, like all the rest, thanks for continuing to honor the victims and the heroes of 9-11. Um, we, we should never forget, and I, I worry, about, as you do, and other people have articulated that, you know, with new generations coming up, and you know, especially with a president that we have now in the White House, that not even in the same city or anywhere in the vicinity to honor such a sacred day. Um, it's, it's, it's sad. And uh, I just, I remember that day I was on duty on Cleveland fire. And when the first plane hit, it was like, my gosh, how did he miss not seeing that? And then when the second one hit, you knew this was that we were this, this whole Paul fell over, you know, our station and what was going on and what was to come. Um, months later on St. Patrick's day, a group of us flew up to New York to be with the New York firefighters and march in the parade up there on Fifth Avenue and had firefighters literally from all over the world. Uh, it was a, a time of brotherhood and sisterhood and togetherness, and, and people were, you know, together on this. Uh, and I remember the night before we marched, my one brother and I, who was a firefighter as well, took a walk over to the, the hole, as they called it, and mm-hmm. just stood there at the edge of it, just speechless. Uh, it was just uh, devastation as as an accident would be horrible enough, but to know that someone did this on purpose because of their 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 differences and and how we live and how we free as Americans. And I said, well, they, that's that's why they did it because we are free. And as the woman before me articulated, I just pray that people 
remember that and that that's continued to be taught to our children. Because if we forget that, you know what they say, those that won't remember history are condemned to repeat it. That's right. So thank you. Thank you again for doing this, Bob. Thank you, Vince. Great story. And thank you for being a first responder, by the way. You and your brother, firefighter brother, and all firefighters within the sound of my voice. First responders have a special place, obviously. TJ in Cleveland is next. TJ, go right ahead. Yeah, Bob, very somber show. Uh, You know, Charlie's testimony really hit me hard. Uh, But, you know, on 9-11, I was a uh, phone contractor for uh, Department of Defense financing in the federal building. And, you know, I was always a little leery because, you know, Oklahoma City bombing of the federal building. Mm -hmm. But after 9-11, what I found myself doing is not using elevators. And, you know, being a phone uh, guy with, with over 15 floors to cover... That got a little bit rough, you know, not using elevators, because I was all around the building like a little rat, you know, doing my service calls. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it it, it it was bad, because it was on our mind all the time, you know, when they evacuated the federal building. And we, and we realized we were probably a target. So I think people... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.